Hello, and welcome to Campus Exchange, an AEI for Students podcast. I'm Joshua Jankler, a sophomore at Stanford University, and I'm incredibly excited to share an interview with Dr. Michael Rubin about America's dramatic and worrisome withdrawal from Afghanistan. Dr. Rubin is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in Iran, Turkey, and the broader Middle East. A former Pentagon official, Dr. Rubin has lived in post-revolution Iran, Yemen, and both pre- and post-war Iraq. He also spent some time with the Taliban before 9-11. For more than a decade, he taught classes at sea about the Horn of Africa and Middle East conflicts, culture, and terrorism to deployed US Navy and Marine units. In this interview, we explore the delicate status quo in Afghanistan that the withdrawal engendered, the tumultuous and complicated past that led us here, and the opaque future of the region and America's forever wars. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you do, be sure to give us a rating to help others find the podcast and to subscribe to the Campus Exchange so that you can be the first to know when we release a new episode. With that, here's my conversation with Michael. Thank you so much for joining me, Michael. So obviously with the unprecedented withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think we all have countless questions about where to from here and where did it all go wrong? Starting out broadly, President Biden made it clear that we did not go to Afghanistan to nation build. How true would you say that is? Can Biden genuinely say that the mission has been accomplished given how long the US has stayed there? Well, we didn't go to nation build. We went to prevent Afghanistan, Afghanistan's territory from being used by terrorists who could strike out at the United States. We went to combat al-Qaeda, which the Taliban had been sheltering. Nation building was a separate decision and perhaps a wrong one. That said, for the past five or six years, we hadn't been nation building. We had simply gone into a train and assist mission, one that wasn't much more expensive than what we were doing in Japan and Korea. And therefore, this notion that the mission had been completed and that we could withdraw without consequence, I think was just an error. And indeed, Many within the military, many within the intelligence community suggest that it's only a matter of time before al-Qaeda fully regroups to a point where they're able to use Afghanistan's safe haven in order to strike out at American interests. Yeah, that was actually, I had a question about that as well in terms of Afghanistan becoming a new terrorist haven, sort of undermining the work of the past 20 years. Uh, we've already seen groups like ISIS-K take refuge and pride in the new Islamic Emirati of Afghanistan. Do you think the existence of an extremist government is going to galvanize terrorists within the region? And if so, should we be concerned that terrorists now have a place to call home base, if not home ideologically? I remember that we discussed at great length whether terrorism is motivated by grievance or ideology, and I think certainly not grievance anymore. Is it going to get stronger? Well, I think it's without a doubt going to get stronger. When President Biden announced his withdrawal, he said, you know, the threat from the Islamic State, for example, is, wasn't just in Afghanistan. It's in Mozambique. It's in Somalia. It's elsewhere. But the prescription for that isn't simply to withdraw. It's perhaps to understand that as states teeter on the brink of failure, it's important to be able to fill that vacuum, to be able to project force. The fact of the matter is reputation also matters, credibility matters, and the notion that Islamic extremists had defeated the United States gives incentive for any numbers of other extremists, not only Islamic, but others, 
to try to take their pot shots at the United States in the belief that they too could outlast or defeat a superpower. When Ronald Reagan ordered the withdrawal of U.S. Marines from Beirut back in, I believe it was 1985 when he ordered the withdrawal, he didn't realize that some two-bit Somali warlord, Muhammad Idid, was going to use that withdrawal as inspiration in order to galvanize his forces in what would ultimately become the Black Hawk Down incident. Mm-hmm. Nor did we recognize that someone like Osama bin Laden would look towards that withdrawal as motivation to attack the United States much more broadly on our homeland. I think ultimately history is going to judge President Biden harshly. This rhetoric of forever wars in which he engages is really just a reframing for traditional containment and deterrence are. By the standards of President Biden, then why do we have forces in Korea, Japan, or Germany? Are they forever wars too, or are they simply just deterrence and augmenting local forces. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if President Biden hadn't ordered his withdrawal, not only would the Taliban not be in Kabul, they wouldn't be in any regional capital right now. What he did, I think, is unforgivable. Yeah, I have to say it as well, unforgivable in that I think the term forever war puts it very well, and it's just such an ominous way to describe it. Do you think forces in Korea and Germany and their leadership feel somewhat insecure now about the forever war and how roped in they are? based on the U.S.'s almost sudden and out-of-nowhere overnight decision to leave. Obviously, it was always the plan, but the way that it was executed, should American allies be just as concerned and feel just as betrayed as the Afghan government, do you think? I absolutely do think they should. And this is something that can't just be pinned on Biden. It's a long time coming. And certainly, Trump's positions were largely consistent with Biden's on this as well. Trump talked about forever wars as well. President Obama talked about a pivot to Asia, but what everyone else in the Middle East heard was a pivot away from us. And therefore, absolutely every U.S. ally should question the staying power of the United States. We could take this back even further. And Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, for example, during President Obama's term, once told, assured our Arab allies that if Iran went nuclear, not to worry because the United States would extend a nuclear umbrella over them. The problem for this, and she wasn't expecting the reaction, was, I mean, absolute dismay. Not that these Arab states questioned the commitment of the United States to extend a nuclear umbrella, but what they were pointing out was, for decades, the United States had assured them that Iran wouldn't be allowed to go nuclear. So how could they trust America's word? in a situation like this. And what I also worry about, and this starts with the Trump administration, is that the stigma associated with abandoning allies, what Trump did to the Syrian Kurds, for example, what Obama, what Biden did with regard to our Afghan allies, it's diminishing every time we do it. And therefore, any future Republican or Democrat isn't going to worry quite as much about simply abandoning allies by citing forever wars or citing some realist doctrine. Ultimately, this is really doing damage to America's reputation, and it's damage that isn't going to be overcome in a new administration. I mean, there's a conceit in Washington. I'm sorry to ramble on, Josh. There's a conceit in Washington that every administration starts with a tabula rasa, that starts with a blank slate. And that's simply not the way the world works. We are going to be weighted down by the mistakes of past administrations and 
what Biden has done certainly adds a huge deal of weight to America's reputation for betrayal. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, as you said, reputation is especially important in a region where saber rattling is all too prominent. Something that I was going to ask as well, I think a very common calculus in when assessing the Middle East and the conflict in the Middle East nowadays is how will Iran react? Do you think that's as applicable here, having discussed the offering the nuclear cloud and defense? And if so, how will Iran react now that they've got this profoundly new and distinct Afghanistan so close to their home home shores? Funny you should mention that because I was just translating one of Supreme Leader Khamenei's speeches from October 3rd, in which he addressed this head on. And what he argued with his usual conspiratorial nonsense is that the United States went in to Afghanistan, talked about everything they were going to do, and absolutely achieved none of it, and instead simply ruined Afghan society, in his words, sponsored the drug trade, which is conspiratorial nonsense and, and so on. And what he argues is no one should believe the Hollywood movie depictions of the U.S. Army. He actually, he actually talks in those terms that wherever the United States Army is, what one sees is betrayal and what one sees is anti-Americanism as peoples recognize what the U.S. Army, in his view, actually stands for. Now, there's something to that when it comes to the Pew Global Attitude Survey. Turkey, where the United States has a military base in Interlik, is among the most anti-American countries on earth, according to Pew's annual surveys. That said, Khamenei exaggerates because you don't have the same sort of anti-Americanism in Japan or Korea. In Germany, which was anti-American during the Trump administration, broadly speaking, it's rebounded under Biden. In the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, you don't have that deep-seated anti-Americanism. I think where Khamenei actually goes wrong is he projects his anti-Americanism onto the rest of the region and it confuses the symptom with the disease. And why do many Middle Eastern states partner with the U.S. military? It's because they're afraid of Iran. And so they're not going to trust Khamenei's urging of them to turn their backs on the U.S. military when what they see in the region, quite realistically, is Iran upending stability and sponsoring insurgency in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Yemen, and so forth. So you don't think Iran's grown profoundly strong or is at least feeling a little bit confident well, seen the withdrawal? Well, first of all, they're feeling overconfident, and that's okay. dangerous because wars in the Middle East aren't caused by oil. They're not caused by water. Fundamentally, they're caused by overconfidence, and one can actually apply that to the United States as well. The Iranians are feeling fundamentally overconfident, and they're going to grow more overconfident after the Iraqi elections in which they're probably going to have the dominant say in the future of the Iraqi government. At the same time, however, the Iranians overestimate their own brand when it comes to the rest of the region. And in this case, they may not be able to capitalize as much as they hope to. The one thing which we are going to see, however, Josh, is that, you know, the United States too often looks at relations in the region as purely bilateral. What's our position towards Saudi Arabia? What are our relations with the Emirates? What are our relations with Turkey? A lot of these countries recognize that there's other players in the sandbox. And what we're going to see is many of these other countries making accommodations with Iran, not because they like Iran, but because they feel Iran has staying power. And we're also going to see some pivoting and furtherance of relations with Russia and with China. And we're already seeing that when it comes to the United Arab Emirates and when it comes to Egypt and Saudi Arabia, 
three traditional American allies in the region. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's a very ominous picture of this numbers game. And I think as much as the Afghans have lost numbers in the American soldiers and, of course, an entire government, it's almost as though the American government is losing as many allies as they've let down in that process. And I think I hear a lot about China and, and Russia in particular, seeing Afghanistan as this new gold mine of opportunity and this American failure as helping them to become the superpowers that they're looking to in the Cold War in the desert, as it were. Do you think that's also overconfidence? Or do you think they have now got such a strategic stronghold for showing that they do have staying power and at the very least, you know, no, they certainly don't have internal political pressure or fears of succession or the politicking that happens back home in the US. Do you think that's going to appeal to a lot of these nations and contribute to profound ideological and allyship shift? Well, what really frustrates me to use a poker analogy is the United States comes into a hand with a full house and Russia or China might have a pair of twos and yet somehow manage to be to outbluff us and to win the hand. That's something which has been happening repeatedly across administrations. And it's because the United States increasingly doesn't have a long-term strategic plan. When it comes to the strategic game board, if you will, of Asia, we may find the whole notion distasteful. We may find it a throwback to the 19th century. But for the realists, it's, it's profoundly unrealistic not to understand that this is going on. When it comes to Afghanistan, for example, Look, a lot of both Republicans and Democrats talk about India, the world's largest democracy, as being a natural American ally and trying to grow our relationship. But what we've essentially done is cut off India from Central Asia because they needed to operate through Afghanistan. What we've essentially done is given Pakistan, which has become a Chinese vassal, strategic depth, just as India, our ally in the region, finds its own borders under threat from China. The fact of the matter is, we are in a situation in which we're losing the strategic game and beyond the Middle East. Look, deterrence is a military strategy, but it's also a psychological strategy. And what we've done is undercut the psychological component of that by raising big question marks over American staying power. And we're seeing that side of the crisis now play out across the Taiwan Straits. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just looking at, as you said, in terms of a long-term strategy, it almost feels like the US was making it up as they went along, particularly as administrations changed. But before pivoting to Pakistan and India, I wanted to ask you, do you think America wins its walls in the Middle East, so to speak, to get very broad? And is it just the nation-building process that failed here? Is it just the post-conflict environment that failed? Or was this genuinely a militant failure? Okay, well, when it comes to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're often conflated in public discussion, but there's three different questions. The first question is whether to go to war in the first place, and the aim there being to overthrow the Taliban regime or Saddam Hussein's regime. The second question is whether it's wise to replace those regimes with a democracy or just accept another dictatorship, put in place Saddam's sons or some other militant group that might not host al-Qaeda and the third issue question is the question of nation building. I find that the military justification for going to war in Iraq and Afghanistan was wise. I find that if we're going to go to war, that it's better to try for democracy than simply accept another dictatorship. Where I disagree 
is when it comes to nation building. Now, when it comes to your broader question, do we win these sorts of wars? The answer is no, but it's because of our own choice. No one suggested, I mean, the only reason we lost to the Taliban is because Joe Biden decided to stop fighting. Again, had we remained with just 2,500 troops or 5,000 troops in Afghanistan, the Taliban wouldn't be in any provincial capital, let alone Kabul. I live in Bethesda, Maryland. Fewer people have died in automobile accidents in Montgomery County, Maryland, than Americans have died fighting in Afghanistan over the last several years. So you got a situation where we had found that magic formula until Joe Biden upended the basis upon which we were operating. And unfortunately, just in conclusion, when you ask whether we lose wars, one of the biggest problems I have with this rhetoric of forever wars and ending forever wars is that people like Joe Biden and the progressives in Congress think that ending a war is a unilateral decision, but it actually takes two sides to fight that war. And if the militant side don't believe that the war is ended, if they continue to want to attack the United States, then all you've done is given them strategic advantage with which to do so rather than to end a forever war. Forever wars end when one side is defeated. That's how World War II ended. That's how many other wars ended. Operation Desert Storm with Saddam Hussein's withdrawal from Kuwait. It takes the defeat of an enemy. It doesn't take a unilateral surrender. I see. Yeah, I've I've actually never heard the numbers put in that perspective, as you said, of the motor vehicle accidents in Bethesda, right? And I think it's very overstated in terms of the, the sheer bloodshed that Americans have seen the past 20 years in Afghanistan. Do you think that a lot of that rhetoric has come as a political tool in the US and as a campaigning tool and that that's been undermining the military process? If so, in the long term, what do we do to have a better strategic military outlook that's not dominated by the voices in Congress, but rather by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, for example? Well, first of all, I, I want to clarify, I was talking about the casualty rates over the last five or six years. Okay. I mean, in the first few yeah. years of, of Operation Enduring Freedom, the, the casualty levels were much higher, but that's also when we were engaged in nation building. But beyond that, look, Congress has an important role. Mm-hmm. So I'm not simply going to defer this to the Joint Chiefs. Congress provides the oversight and they're a co-equal branch of the U.S. government. But I do think your question hits the nail on the head. I mean, the fact of the matter is, during the Cold War, the reason why we were so powerful is because we had bipartisan consensus. If you judge Jimmy Carter during his administration by the same standards with which politicians are judged today, he would be dismissed as an irresponsible hawk. I mean, after all, he responded with sanctions, for example, when it came to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. He sought a military rescue attempt for the hostages in Iran and so forth. I mean, to the point that his own Secretary of State, Cyrus Vance, resigned. The fact of the matter is, we've lost that bipartisan consensus. And the only way to rebuild it is to ignore some of those who have confused their purpose in Congress with accruing Twitter followers Mm. and instead look to the Democrats and the Republicans. I would say they're the majority who are willing to quietly talk across the aisle and and define what America's strategic purpose is. 
Because again, what we're doing right now is signaling that, I mean, America's staying power only lasts four years, less than that, considering how our political campaigns are starting earlier. And there's also got to be just a broad revulsion, a, a broad blowback against some of the talking heads on both the left and the right who try to seek advantage from this when our troops are in the field. In the past, there would be a stigma associated with that. Today, that's evaporated and we're suffering for it. Mm. I, I mean, we really need a new national compact, but that's got to start in Congress and it's got to start quietly. It can't start with the military simply because the military answers through the Congress. Okay, I see. I think that has restored a little bit of confidence in my mind of what Congress can achieve when motivated by its true ends. I quite like the the reference to Carter because it almost, you know, straight away my mind goes to the 70s and an analogy that a lot of people race to that I'm going to race to now was whether this is equivalent to the withdrawal from Saigon and whether it has failed to the same extent. Is it worse? What are some parallels here with Vietnam, not to play the historical game. Yeah, yeah. I think Saigon is the most accurate analogy, but it's not a complete analogy. And of course, when it comes to analogies, they're always useful. And we also always recognize that there's important differences. When the United States abandoned South Vietnam, there was a belief that the Vietnamese would largely survive. I mean, they might go to re-education camps, but they would be re-educated as, as horrible as that might sound. I mean, the Taliban idea of re-education is a bullet in the back of the neck. And we've seen that, that despite their rhetoric, despite their rhetoric that of amnesty and so forth, they've been hunting down those whom they see as having collaborated with the United States and executing them. The other thing that was clear with Vietnam is while South Vietnam might collapse, there was a sense that the United States had still put a break on the expansion of that communist ideology and it raised the cost of it to be too great for the Soviets and their proxies to bear, at least in the short term. Although again, we saw the invasion of Afghanistan just a couple years later. The concept of victory that the Taliban have, the concept of victory that the Islamists have having defeated in their narrative two superpowers, gives them a shot of adrenaline that the North Vietnamese never had. So I do think we're in serious trouble. I would also point out that in the wake of Saigon and the evacuation of Saigon, we had the Khmer Rouge take over Cambodia and a million people were killed there. So let's not diminish the cost of American withdrawal and simply allowing totalitarian forces, ideologically totalitarian forces to have their run over a region. Yeah. I mean, on that, on that notion of these totalitarian forces with a new shot of adrenaline, something I still can't really fathom is this new term of Taliban 2.0. You know, when I hear 2.0, I'm inclined to picture, as you said, this newly invigorated and aggressive force. But you do hear a lot of people sort of looking at this new Taliban as being a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more open, and, you know, not the Taliban that we've seen with public executions. Is that accurate, the statement of no. Taliban 2.0? It's not accurate. And, and where that originates is with our special envoy, Zameh Khalilzad, who, by the way, before 9-11 actually did business with the Taliban when he was working for Unical, trying to have the Taliban become part of a pipeline deal. And one of the problems we've had, and this shows just some of the problems with American diplomacy, is that Congress hasn't adequately questioned Zameh Khalilzad on evidence to back up 
this notion that the Taliban have fundamentally changed. Those who have questioned Zameh Khalilzad, like National Security Advisor Mohid or the former Vice President Amr Lasala, found themselves being denied visas to travel to the United States because Zameh Khalilzad was much more concerned with preventing an alternate viewpoint from reaching policymakers than he was in actually providing evidence for the viewpoint which he wanted them to understand. And so you've got a situation in which Congress simply failed on its oversight to question where this notion of a Taliban 2.0 came from. Mm. At best, you can say that the Taliban have gotten a little bit better with PR, that they've learned that they have to at least talk the talk, even if they're not willing to walk the walk. But again, with all the public executions that we've seen uh, around Afghanistan recently, the Washington Post talked about public executions in Herat, for example, with bodies dangling from cranes in the main square and in front of the main mosque. That shows that the Taliban haven't changed at all. And again, I mean, I spent some time with the Taliban back in March of 2000, Mm. a year and a half before 9-11. At the time, the Taliban were saying, you know, we brought security to Afghanistan, and that's what some Afghans are hoping for now. But what Afghans told me four years after they had taken control of Afghanistan the first time is that the security that the Taliban had provided was fleeting and that the Taliban soon turned to victimizing ordinary Afghans the way the criminals, which they said they were fighting or countering once had, that that really there is no net security gain for ordinary Afghan citizens. And every indication is we're seeing the same thing now. The other issue that's backing that notion that the Taliban have changed or that we can change our posture to the Taliban is this belief that somehow we can use the Taliban to fight other terrorist groups. And before, you had mentioned the Islamic State Kurdistan branch or perhaps al-Qaeda branches in Afghanistan. But again, this notion seems more to be one of wishful thinking than reality. Because remember that we don't have sort of Germanic structures to the various terrorist groups that might operate in Afghanistan. What you have are different leaders, and then you have a vociferous recruiting pool where they might shift from one to the other. And in theory, when we talk about how the Taliban need to disassociate themselves from other militant groups like al-Qaeda or like the Islamic State, Mm. we've got a situation in which that sounds good on paper, that sounds good in Washington, but what you're saying is that literally brother needs to disassociate themselves from brother in an Afghan family context cousin from cousin, that's never been realistic. And so this notion that somehow we can utilize the Taliban against the Islamic State is a fictional excuse we've used in order to justify a withdrawal that has very real consequences. On the topic of that fraternal relationship and trying to sever ties between brother and brother, I think now's a good, uh, good time to bring up Pakistan. You know, ISI has very comfortably facilitated terrorist networks and exchanges in Afghanistan, and I've, I've heard many arguments that that's where the mess began in terms of the radical Mujahideen that they sponsored way back when, when the Soviets invaded. What is the future of US-Pakistani relationships? Was the US complicit in, well, not complicit in terms of helping, but should the US not have been stricter on Pakistan's aiding and abetting? Ultimately, the answer to that is yes and yes. The fact of the matter is when people say, well, what could we have done because we needed Pakistan to supply our forces in Afghanistan. That's right. And back in 2010, when I was researching my book, I sat down with, I think it was Asaf Dorani, who was former head of the ISI. And he said openly that 
Pakistanis are supporting both sides to sort of raise up the cost to the United States that wasn't in their interest to simply abandon the Taliban. And in effect, they were playing both firefighter and arsonist and getting paid paid for both actions. One of the things that frustrates me is when some partisans, there's one who has since joined the Biden administration named Jarrett Blank, who said, well, what are you going to do? This is all just magical thinking. Well, here's here's some specific issues. I mean, 90% of explosive precursors that the Taliban used for improvised explosive devices came from one of two factories, inside uh, nitrate factories inside Pakistan. I mean, you got to be kidding to say that we can't shut down those two factories, monitor them, or somehow compel Pakistan to stop supplying the Taliban with explosives. So there are very specific actions we could have taken, which we never did. We should have put Pakistan's, and we still should put Pakistan's major non-NATO ally status on the table. Mm-hmm. Is Pakistan acting like a major non-NATO ally? They've been directly complicit in the deaths of thousands of people. And what we're see- learning more and more as the smoke clears over Afghanistan is what we saw wasn't simply a Taliban uprising that defeated the Afghan army. What we saw was a Pakistani invasion through the Taliban, there were more than 4,000 foreigners, at least 1,500 of whom were Pakistani, who took part in this summer's fighting alongside and often in command of Taliban units. We know this from open source public statements. We know this from tracing those who were killed, Pakistanis who were killed fighting, some of whom were Pakistani military officers from their bios, from their public funerals back in Pakistan. The fact of the matter is, Pakistan owes us a lot, and we shouldn't allow them to get away with murder. Unfortunately, as we're recording this, Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman is in Pakistan, and it seems that she's tilting to the usual fiction that somehow we are both victims of of militancy, we need to work together, and so forth. Look, the United States is at its strongest, and national security is best safeguarded when we actually calibrate our national security to reality rather than wishful thinking. It's time, simply put, to designate Pakistan, not only strip them of their non-NATO allies, major non-NATO ally status, but frankly, they should be designated a state sponsor of terror. They should be put on the FATF blacklist as well in, in next week's meetings. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a particularly urgent now that they've, you know, ostensibly won one side of the argument. I, you know, this is clearly the arsonist side. Are they feeling strong? Do you think? Obviously, this is a They're feeling overconfident. They're feeling strong. They're feeling overconfident. And and the tragedy is, and this is why we really should approach Pakistan with moral clarity, is by holding the ISI to account, we really could benefit the Pakistani people. And when you look back at Pakistan's foundation, when we look back at its first decades, I mean, this was a state that in theory was an Islamic state, but in reality, it was a very tolerant state. It used to celebrate Sikh holidays. It used to celebrate Hindu holidays. It used to celebrate Christian holidays, all as national holidays. Now it's prosecuting these religious minorities as blasphemers and oftentimes subjecting them to capital punishment. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, if Pakistan, if the ISI didn't promote the sort of Islamism at home and abroad, Pakistan would be in a much better economic place. It would be a much more successful country. Its people would be much more affluent. If Pakistan were at peace with itself and at peace with its neighbors, there is no restricting 
the aspirations of the Pakistani people. And unfortunately, the ISI is instead guiding them off a cliff. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's devastating to hear about the humanitarian crisis that's ensuing. I think, you know, we've discussed a lot about the politically strategic crisis as well. One of my favorite contentions we discussed in the Summer Honors Program was whether the US military is the most effective humanitarian organization in the world. You know, in this context, now that they're gone, what is the hope for the minorities in both Afghanistan and Pakistan who face severe persecution? And do you think that that contention stands at all, particularly in the absence of the US military or towards the dying stages of the forever war? Look, there, there's a conceit in Washington that we can make any policy decision and still find a way to mitigate the results or, or get the best possible outcome. But if your policy decision is to drive a car off the cliff, as you're plummeting to your death, there's very little you can do. The fact of the matter is the best option for the minorities right now in Afghanistan and in Pakistan are to flee because it's going to be open season on them by Islamic militants. I mean, it's devastating to hear and it's almost unreal. I remember being glued to the TV screen, just thinking, how have we, how have we gone back? You know, it's like we've reversed the clock. And on that, I'm reminded a little bit of the old Americans have all the watches, but we have all the time, as they say. When you spent time with the Taliban in March of 2000, did you get that sense of this long-term outlook? Again, this sort of pragmatism that people are hailing about Taliban 2.0. Did they have a better time frame plan compared to the US? What did you say? Well, at, at that point in time, look, 9-11 wasn't on the horizon as far as public knowledge. I mean, certainly I wasn't privy to what they or Al-Qaeda were doing. They were trying to reach out to the United States to normalize relations with literally the argument that they were no worse than Saudi Arabia. The former daughter-in-law of the US CIA director, Richard Helms, the daughter-in-law was Lely Helms, was the Taliban's lobbyist inside Washington. And so what the Taliban had on their agenda was something quite different. It was simply recognizing the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And had it not been for 9-11, we probably would have done so. The fact of the matter is, however, once 9-11 happened, once the United States signaled that it didn't have staying power, ultimately, it was a no-brainer for the Taliban. I mean, the two mistakes the United States made here was offering a timeline and pretending that Pakistan wasn't a party to this conflict. When Joe Biden, for example, gave his speech talking about the withdrawal and so forth, talking about the way forward, the fact that he didn't mention Pakistan, in my view, is policy negligence, it's policy malpractice. To talk about the Taliban without talking about Pakistan is like talking about Lebanese Hezbollah without mentioning the Islamic Republic of Iran. Mm, I see. Yeah, I mean, it does this bizarre almost sense of denial, which I think it's been difficult for the public to kind of estimate what led us here. It's almost been a part of our reality. I mean, I, I was born the day before 9-11, so I've certainly my entire life, the US has been at war in the, in the Middle East. Is 9-11 the genuine starting point of that, would you say? Because Pakistan almost seems to have had not a long-term plan, but they seem to have been playing the double-sided side, double game for a very long time. So a very broad question once again, but where do you think the war in terror began that led to this point? Well, when it came, when it came to Pakistan, the inflection point was in 1971. Remember, when Pakistan was created, it was created as an Islamic state, but it was a patchwork of different ethnicities, the Punjabis, the Sindhis, the Baluchis, and the Bengalis. The Bengalis were in East Pakistan, which 
was located over a thousand miles away from West Pakistan, and they seceded based on Bengali nationalism rather than on religious solidarity. And when that happened, then of course India encouraged their secession. When Bangladesh became independent, the lesson learned from the Pakistani military was that these ethnic differences, which we have inside Pakistan and along our borders, aren't just an irritant; they can pose an existential threat. We need a glue to hold our country together. That glue can be not only Islam, but a much more all-encompassing radical vision of Islam. And so, starting around 1971, you actually had the rapid Islamization of, if not Pakistani elite society, then the Pakistani military and Pakistani, the Pakistan's ISI, the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency. Now, when it comes to Afghanistan, of course, Afghanistan is landlocked. And while today we think about the problem of Pakistani infiltration or Taliban infiltration from Pakistan into Afghanistan, throughout the 1950s and 60s, the infiltration was going the other way as Afghanistan lay claim to the northwest frontier province, to the Pashtun areas inside Pakistan. So, what when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979? Look, the United States wanted to push back for Cold War reasons, and. The, the deal was simple: the United States would provide the weaponry, the Saudis would provide the money, and Pakistan would distribute it. And rather than distribute it to more liberal nationalist groups in Afghanistan, they, without exception, distributed to the so-called Shawar Seven, who were motivated by religious conservatism. And that's fundamentally when Afghan society had changed. And Pakistan's calculation never changed, even after the fall of the Soviet occupation. They wanted an Islamist regime to protect their flank. Because a nationalist regime, they felt, would undercut their national security. There has never been a country I can think of in the world today that has less self-confidence as a nation than Pakistan. It's completely an artificial country. It knows it. It has no unifying glue other than Islam, and even that doesn't seem to be strong enough to hold it. And yet, in its death throes, it's lashing out because it can't replace. This sort of religious identity with a national identity, simply because the ethnic identities, especially the Punjabis, are too strong and are too inclined to sort of put everyone else down. So long-winded answer to your your question. But what I would also say, you said you were born the day before 9/11. Something else I think we need to think about is just the periodization of history and how the events of our lives shape the thinkings of policymakers. So you don't personally remember 9/11, of course. I remember exactly where I was.、Mm-hmm. I also remember the Cold War. I mean, when I was eight years old at summer camp in Massachusetts, and I would hear the air raid siren go off at Otis Air Force Base, the question in my eight-year-old mind is, "Are we under attack?" And I remember in college, for example, seeing fallout shelters and so forth. And so I grew up with the Cold War mentality. The question is whether the younger generation of policymakers—they've forgotten the lessons of the Cold War. Perhaps that's good. Perhaps that's bad. But have they also forgotten the lessons of the 9/11 era and what happens when we do allow hostile totalitarian ideologies to fill vacuums and to have a safe petri dish upon which to grow? And unfortunately, I think that's what's at issue right now in the American policy debate.、Hmm. That is interesting in terms of you know forgotten lessons because I think particularly here out west, and one of the reasons I enjoyed your clarity about Pakistani complicity in funding the Mujahedin is there's 
a lot of revisionist arguments about America being complicit in cultural imperialism and trying to impose its doctrines on the West and that, you know, frankly, we've earned this loss. Do you think that that's a big risk that my generation and, you know, a lot of people in my peer group are posing in, from a policy perspective? Is this post 9-11 lack of clarity in memory where we are sort of trying to revise America's role as a spreader of democracy? I do think it's a huge problem. Oftentimes, the talking points upon which that revisionism is based are completely unmoored from reality. At other times, they're completely unmoored from proportionality and perspective. The fact of the matter is the United States has done, I mean, far more good in the world than ill. That doesn't mean that we haven't acted without mistakes. But when people talk about multipolarity, Back in the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it sounded more benign to talk about multipolarity, put some constraints on the United States so that we don't constraints to our projection of force. But now when we see what multipolarity really means, when we see what it means, for example, to the Uyghurs in, in China, or what it means to the Ukrainians as Russia sort of asserts its, its power, then I think people need to have a much more fundamental look at what's at stake and who's responsible for the post-World War II liberal order. If it weren't for American power, the shape of the post-World War II order would be fundamentally different. And as we see the internment camps in China today, as we see Russia congratulating Abiy Ahmed as he starves the Tigrayan population, what we see is what would happen if the United States isn't the dominant power. It really is a look into the crystal ball of the future and it should send shutters down everyone's spine. I couldn't agree more. I want to say it's encouraging to remember that there is this American role and that it's important. And I think for a last very broad and you know, almost obligatory out of interest question is, based on that role, where to from here? What, what is the future of the Middle East, both from existing policymakers and upcoming aspirational policymakers or politicians, depending on what you want to call it? from think tanks to colleges. Where to? What do we do? Well, you know, we've been talking about all the reasons to be pessimistic, but there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. And we look at the Abraham Accords for that today. I mean, you look at the fact that Israel not only isn't isolated on the world stage, it's not isolated in the Middle East anymore. And the fact of the matter is, Israel's got relations with Jordan, with Egypt, with Morocco, with Sudan, with Bahrain, with the United Arab Emirates. Frankly, Saudi Arabia and Oman probably aren't long behind. And frankly, Israel's got relationships with them too, even if they're not formalized and so forth. The fact of the matter is the soak of the isolators and those who proponents of the BDS movement would embrace are the ones who are truly becoming isolated and anti-democratic on the Middle Eastern stage. They're the ones who aren't representing the popular will. And it's easy to tell people they shouldn't get along unless you actually have to live there and, and people are sick and tired of this conflict. That said, we do need to worry about the failure of certain states. And what the United States is up against are states which are legitimate, which are going to persist versus states which have fundamental legitimacy problems, be them Somalia, be them Syria, be them Yemen, and what will happen in those states. What I could say is that unless the United States is able to fill the vacuum, and I think this is the context in which we need to look at it. Alternate forces will. That doesn't mean we need to invade everywhere. But at the same time, a small 
contribution of U.S. forces, for example, in Kabul, is oftentimes enough to allow to prevent a deluge of chaos. Not recognizing that is what really can create the danger in the future. If we're able to fill, and the same thing is true with Donald Trump and northeastern Syria. If we are willing to fill that vacuum, we can try to stabilize some of these states and allow the Middle East to get on with its future, because God knows most of the people within the region very much want to just have fairly normal lives. That said, on the negative side, I'm worried about the future of Turkey. Turkey is to the 21st century what Saudi Arabia was to the 20th in catalyzing extremism, not only in the region, but in the world. The other issue, and who knows which way this will go, is going to be the death of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei inside Iran. What will happen in Iran should the revolution falter? Are they going to double down on their aggression, or could we see a sincere transition? When you look at the Middle East more broadly, just imagine, and this is just a thought question, how different the Middle East could be if Iran's orientation would be different. Think of all the problems that emanate with Iran. On the alternate side of that thought question, think of how the Middle East would be different if the United States couldn't count on or work with a country like Jordan or Saudi Arabia. If instead of being today forces for moderation in the region, Jordan and Saudi Arabia were rejectionist states. And so before the United States does anything to undercut the monarchies of either, no matter how distasteful we might find the King of Jordan's corruption or the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's pension for dismembering journalists. The fact of the matter is, we need to understand that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this episode was as illuminating for you as it was for me. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Campus Exchange, make sure to give us a rating and to subscribe to the podcast. Also, if you want to learn more about AEI's work on college campuses, visit AEI.org or click on the link in the show notes. Lastly, make sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to learn more about upcoming events for students. I've loved every moment of AEI exploring the values of free enterprise, and you can do the same by following AEI for Students.